for the bomb that almost took my life. But there's one last thing that they did, one last twist of the knife. The FBI stole my fiddle. They stole my fiddle. The FBI stole my fiddle. The FBI stole, the stole my fiddle. The FBI stole my fiddle. That was Judy Berry and Daryl Cherney with The FBI Stole My Fiddle, a song they wrote about their experience of being bombed and blamed for it by the FBI in 1990 while they were on a speaking tour for a campaign called Redwood Summer. Those of us old enough to remember Judy Berry, the car bombing and the huge logging protests of the early 1990s can tell you so many stories about those days, how the earth firsters and the loggers were pitted against each other by the local timber corporations, how Judy was building a coalition with mill workers and loggers to speak out against the liquidation logging in Humboldt and Mendocino. There was a front page story in the Ukiah Daily Journal the day after Judy and her supporters stood in front of the Mendocino County Board of Supervisors and held up death threats she'd received. Marilyn Butcher, who was supervisor for the 1st District at that time, told her, Judy, you brought this on yourself. Everyone remembers the day they heard about the bomb. People rushed out to a vigil at the courthouse in Ukiah and stood together the next day at the Methodist Church to decry the violence and try to make sense out of the news that Judy herself had been arrested for carrying the bomb that had been used to try and kill her. This community refused to let Judy and Daryl be framed for the bombing, from the first hours after the attack all the way through a decade of litigation against the FBI and Oakland police to clear her name. We also refused to stop protesting for the trees, even in the face of such extreme violence. Redwood Summer, the Albion Nation Uprising in 1992, and the Headwaters Forest Campaign were examples of this uncompromising courage. Judy returned to organizing a year after the bombing, physically wounded but determined to fight back. She and Daryl filed a civil rights lawsuit against the FBI and Oakland police, accusing them of using the illegal techniques of political sabotage and counterintelligence against them and Earth First to destroy their movement. In 1996, just on the heels of the largest civil disobedience action ever to protect the forest, with 1,033 arrests at the Pacific Lumber Gate to Headwaters Forest, Judy was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer. She died in Willits on March 2, 1997, just weeks after recording her video testimony for her lawsuit against the FBI. Those of us who loved her and believed in her work kept pushing the case forward, showing up for court hearings, donating money for legal fees, and organizing across the country to tell people about what the FBI had done. Five years later, in June 2002, an Oakland jury found the FBI and Oakland police liable for $4.4 million in civil rights abuses, the first jury verdict of its kind against the FBI. Judy had won. This week, an exhibit will open at the Mendocino County Museum called The Bombing of Judy Berry, a community remembers. It will run for six weeks and feature as the centerpiece Judy's bombed car, which will be on display for visitors to see for themselves. Judy was a Willits resident, her story is a Mendocino County story. Today, we will hear the last public speech Judy Berry made in November 1996 at the Beginnings Octagon in Briceland. She spends the hour putting together the pieces of evidence uncovered through the course of her lawsuit to paint a picture of FBI abuse and unanswered questions. Six years later, that Oakland jury agreed with her and held the government accountable. This is 
Earth First organizer Judy Berry speaking in Southern Humboldt on November 14, 1996. Um, I actually came here to talk about the bombing case. And the reason that I came here to talk about the bombing case and scheduled this actually quite a bit in advance, and I pretty much canceled most of the stuff that I had scheduled when I found out that I had cancer, and I've kind of been very tired. I haven't had a lot of energy. But I thought this was an important one to try to keep, so I'll do my best. And the reason why this was scheduled now is because we have a big hearing coming up in one week, next Friday on November 22nd. So um, we've been in court with the FBI for, oh, five and a half, six years, and we haven't, we, they've tried three times to get the case thrown out of court, and each time they've failed. And because they failed, eventually they opened up what they call the discovery process of the lawsuit. And that's when we get to look at theirs and they get to look at ours. We get to see all their files and we get to depose them, which is question them under oath. And they're supposed to get to do that to us, but very strangely for an agency that thinks that me and Daryl bombed ourselves, they have never exercised their right to question us under oath and ask us anything about it. So that's a little strange in itself. Anyway, but now that we've been in discovery for years and we've collected about 7,000 pages of sworn testimony from about 50 sleazy FBI agents and Oakland police, and we've got about another 7,000 pages of files and, and police reports and things like that. We've got about 300 photos. We've got all kinds of evidence. And now that we've got all this evidence, they get another chance to get the case thrown out of court. <laughs> the American court system is a wonderful thing. And what they get to do is they now they say, okay, now we've had all this discovery and we all know everything about the case and it, you still don't have a case. And the reason that they can say this is that they have something that's called qualified immunity. And that means that it's also called sovereign immunity, which I think makes it a little bit easier to understand. You're not allowed to sue the king, okay? Um, and what it means is that because they're cops, if they just make a mistake in the course of their duty and shoot the wrong person, too bad, you're not allowed to sue them for that. You're only allowed to sue them if they do something knowingly, consciously, and maliciously. So in order for us to win, we have to show that they didn't just accidentally think we bombed ourselves, that they actually lied to arrest us. Fortunately, the evidence is so strong that this isn't really hard. So what they've done is they, 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 did, they are amazing. They can make a case last forever. They can slice it into ribbons and just draw it out as long as they can. So what they did, we, our, our lawsuit charges them with four things. It's a civil rights lawsuit. Charges them with false arrest, with illegal search and seizure, with, um, with uh, unequal failure to provide equal protection of the law, and with conspiring to violate our First Amendment rights by discrediting us as terrorists. So those are the four charges. So what they've done is they've taken just one of those charges, and that is the, the illegal search and seizure, and they're going to court next Friday to try to tell the judge to show, throw out that charge because they have qualified immunity. So... Um, in order to win, all, they have to show that a reasonable officer could have thought that we bombed ourselves. And we, of course, have to show that they lied to get the search warrant. And so what ha in order for us to do, to argue this piece of the case, this was a warrantless arrest. The only warrant that existed was the search warrant. So all the reasons for the arrest, all the lies that were told, are in the search warrant. So we basically have to present the core of our case to argue this motion. So that's why it's such a significant hearing, because this is the first time we're really going to be presenting all this evidence in court. And... Um, 
There are several very blatant lies that they tell in the warrant. And the first one is that Special Agent Frank Doyle of the, of the terrorist squad says that the bomb was on the backseat floorboard and therefore we should have seen it. So these are some of the 300 pictures. I'm sure you've all seen this one. Okay, they say the bomb is on the backseat floorboard. Uh, not quite. And the backseat was totally intact and pristine. And then this is a side view that shows the same thing and it shows right where the bomb was, right underneath my seat. So um, that's lie number one, is that the bomb was on the backseat floorboard. Well, not only do we have these pictures to show, but also the FBI's own bomb expert from the D.C. lab, uh, David R. Williams, he's a uh, bomb expert that did the World Trade Center bombing. He has testified that when he examined the car that the bomb was under the car seat and that this was obvious from the physical damage. So that was lie number one. Line number two in the warrant is that they said that Special Agent Doyle, once again, said that they found a bag of nails in my car that matched, that were identical, it says in the warrant, to the nails in the bomb. Well, we've now been able to look at all the nails and all the evidence and everything, and we found that the nails in the bomb, it was wrapped with nails for shrapnel effect, we found that the nails in the bomb were finishing nails, long skinny nails with no head, and the nails in the bag in the car were roofing nails, which are short, fat nails, and they didn't vaguely look alike, and we have photographed these nails, and we've got it all ready to show the judge that, once again, this was not a mistake, this was a lie. The third lie was actually kind of a lie of omission. The other thing we've learned about this, we've seen all the pieces of the bomb and everything. It's been a very interesting experience. Um, we found because the, the bomb expert from the lab, David R. Williams, once again testified that the bomb in my car was triggered by a motion device. It was triggered by a large ball bearing that had to roll to connect two contact points. And I've seen the ball bearing. I have pictures of it. And we have the testimony of the bomb expert. And so a bomb hidden under my car seat triggered by a motion device, um, that really kind of discredits the idea that any reasonable officer would have thought that it was our bomb instead of anything but that we were the victims of it. And then the fourth blatant lie they told is they said that they found nails in my house. They, they took finishing nails out of window trim in my house, <laughs> trying to find matching nails. They said that they found some nails, two nails in my house, um, that matched nails in the bomb in a batch of 200 to 1,000 nails. Now, of course, nails are not made by little old nail makers in little you know, batches like that. They're made in batches of millions, and they're shipped in on barges from Saudi Arabia. And the kind of nails that were in the bomb are sold in 200 and 50 hardware outlets on the North Coast, and the FBI knows all this. I got this all from their files, not from mine. Um, so, that, so that's kind of, you know, kind of strange in itself, but the, this is contained in the second search warrant. They searched my house twice. And the second warrant, the guy from OPD, from the Oakland Police, Sergeant Sitterud, he writes... David R. Williams, the FBI lab expert, told me that the, bomb, that the nails match in a batch of 200 to 1,000. So when we questioned David R. Williams under oath, he said, oh, no, I never said that. So there's four lies. And if we can't make it with four lies, I don't know what. They have a few other things they're throwing into the mix, the part about the guitar that the song is about. We already know the answer to that one. Um, that'll be fun in the testimony. Um, but um, they also say that when the bomb went off, um, they said that Daryl said, someone threw a bomb in the car, and I said, a bomb went off in the car. And they said that that meant that Daryl was, I was guilty because I knew it was a bomb, and Daryl was guilty because he lied about it. So, so um, 
um, I don't think that one's going to go too far either. And then one other thing they said is that, that is, this is all written in the warrant. It says that Judy and Daryl are members of a violent terrorist group involved in the manufacture and placing of explosive devices. And we said, of course, Earth First has never been involved with a bomb, except as a victim. We said, well, what explosive devices? They said, the one in your car. So, <laughs> so um, I think we have a pretty good chance in court on the 22nd, um, at least if the judge is at all reasonable, and she isn't necessarily. They're pretty scared of the FBI. It's amazing how timid the judges are. So, um, but it's still, it's an important hearing because it's the first time that we present the evidence. And if they are able to undermine this, if they're able to get this thrown away, then they're just going to chip away at the case. So it's very important not only that we be there and present our case, but that the judge begins to understand that the FBI isn't the only people that she has to answer for. So the the court hearing is at 10.30 next Friday the 22nd, and at 12 noon we're going to have a demonstration. And this is down in Oakland, it's pretty far away, but um, you know, if anybody wants to jump in a bus or come on down, we sure can use all the help we can. We've been doing this for a very long time. There's not very many places where people can show support for this kind of thing. So one of the reasons I wanted to come here today was to let you know that this is coming up, and maybe if people can come, that would be kick-ass. So, um, what to tell you about out of this 14,000 pages of bombing record because it's pretty it would take me days to tell you it all and first I thought I was going to kind of put together a little humble potpourri and tell you all the little juicy humble tidbits about Francine Allen being in the core group capable of violence and um, Mickey Dulles crying because Judy was trying to run things from her wheelchair and all those little little tidbits um, but you know those are all kind of old and I really just I mean if you all want to know the little juicy, isolated, humble tidbits, I'll tell you afterwards if I still have any energy left in the question and answer period if you want to ask. What I really want to do, I just want to tell you this year's update. Because each year that we've worked on this case, I've reached a new level of understanding of what the FBI does, how they do it, and what they did to us. And um, I, should be, I should have done one of these each year, sorry. Um, and it would help a lot because then you'd kind of have the progression. But I'm just going to skip all the ones that you don't have. And I'm just going to go right to what we learned about the bombing case and the FBI and what they do to activists in the last year. So the first thing I need to talk about a little bit, though, I didn't learn this in the last year, and I think most of you probably know about it so somewhat at least, is, of course, that what they did to us was, uh, well, the term for this in the FBI is COINTELPRO, Counterintelligence Program. And what that means, this is a program that was started by J. Edgar Hoover back in the bad old days, and now in the bad new days, they still do it. And um, COINTELPRO, it, that J. Edgar Hoover described, it's a way of they targeting uh, domestic radical groups groups that they think are, are a threat to the U.S. government. So I guess that's quite a compliment to us. I'm, I guess we're a threat to Charles Hurwitz, and he's more powerful than the government, so maybe it all adds up. But anyway, um, what, what J. Edgar Hoover described COINTELPRO as a program, these are his words, to expose, misdirect, isolate, and neutralize political groups that he didn't like. And that's really what's been done to Earth First. And the methods that they used in COINTELPRO include disinformation, fake documents, infiltration, agent provocateurs, uh, fomenting infighting within a group, um, doing, getting the group to do things so that they will be discredited, and also framing and assassinating leaders. 
And uh, the most famous victims of COINTELPRO, well, uh, you probably all know that Martin Luther King was spied on in his motel room. Um, and that, you know, of course, um, in the Black Panthers, there were many Panthers killed, 32 in all. Fred Hampton was a famous victim of COINTELPRO. He was murdered in his bed. Um, Geronimo Pratt is uh, one that's still in jail now, 26 years later, something like that, really a, a very long time. Um, and he, in fact, was framed by the very same guy Richard held, um, the same guy that was in charge of our case at the FBI was in charge of Geronimo's case down in Los Angeles. And what they did, and of course Leonard Peltier is another very well-known victim of COINTELPRO. And what they did in these cases, um, they did the exact kind of thing that I'm talking about. In the Black Panthers, they didn't just frame Geronimo. Before they framed him and put him in jail, they fomented infighting within the leadership so that people in the Black Panthers thought that Geronimo was an FBI agent. So that when he was then framed, the other Panthers wouldn't testify in his behalf. And one of the ways that they fomented this infighting is that they had these like nasty cartoons. Now, the FBI doesn't make up the divisions in your group. They take real divisions and they kind of fan the flames of them. So there was another group, a black nationalist group, as opposed to a black revolutionary group, which was the Panthers was, and the other group was called United Slaves, or US, US. And the, um, and the leader of the United Slaves was named Karenga. So what they did is they had these cartoons, and these cartoons were sent from one faction to the other and back and forth, cartoons, death threats, and insulting letters, and each faction thinking that the cartoons and letters were from the other faction, and they were all from the FBI, until everybody, well, actually, there were actually two Panthers killed in the fighting that resulted from this, which they considered a great success. So eventually COINTELPRO was exposed, and it was exposed not because of anything the U.S. government did, but because in 1971, some um, people, we know not who, broke into the FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and liberated the files. And, um, <laughs> and back then, they used to be very open. They called it COINTELPRO. They said, we have an order to neutralize Huey Newton. They even had an order to neutralize Tom Hayden, and hey, didn't they do it? <laughs> So, um, anyway, so um, they, they, um, they got these files, about 10,000 pages of them, and they went through them and they exposed this just really horrible program. And it took them four years to get a congressional hearing, but they eventually got a congressional hearing in the Senate before Senator Church. It was called the Church Committee, and this was in 1975. And at that time, they ruled, the U.S. Senate Committee ruled that COINTELPRO was illegal, that it violated basic constitutional rights of U.S. citizens. And as a result of this, you may have heard of the Attorney General guidelines. This is what's kind of being undermined by the counterterrorism bill. So they passed these things called the Attorney General guidelines, and they set rules for the FBI and what they could and couldn't do. And what they said they couldn't do is they cannot spy on people, they cannot harass people, they can't engage with people because of political activities. That's what they're banned from doing. They're only allowed to investigate crime. They're not allowed to investigate radical political groups or any political groups. And it, they are allowed to investigate a group if the group is a terrorist group. But they can't just say, oh, Earth First is a terrorist group. They have to go through this whole little formal thing there where they request permission, it gets evaluated, and they're actually formally given permission which ones are considered terrorist groups. So, And Earth First, by the way, was never asked or given permission. It's not considered a terrorist group on their official records. Um, and yet what we've found in our case is that 
you know how with the forestry rules, they have all these forestry rules, you know, so that we have the strongest rules in the United States and all that stuff, but they do this little dance around the rules and they still cut down every tree in the forest. Well, the FBI does the exact same thing with the Attorney General guidelines, okay? They do this little dance around them, but they still manage to do whatever they feel like. And what we found out in the bombing case and in 1990, what we've been learning ever since, is that really what they've been doing to Earth First is exactly the kind of COINTELPRO that they did to the Panthers, that they did to AIM, not quite on the same scale. They haven't killed 32 of us. But nonetheless, the same methodologies that they used against the Panthers and AIM and all of those other groups are the same methodologies that they've used to try to isolate and neutralize and misdirect Earth First. You are listening to a speech by Earth First organizer Judy Berry on November 14, 1996. The Mendocino County Museum is hosting a new exhibit, The Bombing of Judy Berry, A Community Remembers, which opens tomorrow at noon in Willits. Now, um, I also want to, um, I just want to kind of bring you back so you can remember a lot of people here were around in 1990 and may remember what it felt like during those times. And it was some very scary times back then. And one of the things that was happening right behind, right before the bombing, starting in about March 1990, is we began to get all kinds of weird things. We began to get some very scary death threats. The scariest one I got is this one. This is one of me with a rifle scope and crosshairs over my face. Okay, this came in 1990. This actually came in April. Um, this was one of my favorite ones. They never can spell Humboldt and Mendocino County. Welcome dirt first to a Mississippi summer. Okay, and uh, then there's the famous stompers. Here's the stomper boots, okay, and it says, we are Humboldt County employees of forest product industry. We hereby give fair warning to the following low life, Daryl Turney, Greg King, and Judy Berry, get bottom billing to the boys, um, and, um, and they say, if you want to be a martyr, we will be happy to oblige, and on and on. Um, so those were some of the kinds of threats, and you know, when you kind of put them against these you kind of start wondering about this guy, Richard Held. I mean, does he draw? You know? I mean, these are like, I mean, is this just a bunch of artistic loggers? I mean, you know, because I never got death threats before or after this time period. And, you know, it, it, there's a, a kind of a quality to these death threats, it seems a lot. Well, the other thing that happened in 1990 is that um, there were fake documents that were distributed in our community. And some of them went to the press and some of them just went to the community. And this is one of them. It's a press release that says Earth First on the top, but it's from Earth First Arcata, which we all know doesn't exist, right? Um, this is a time when we were calling for a public nonviolence code. We were renouncing tree spiking. We were calling for Gandhian-style nonviolence. But this is a press release that was sent to the press, and it says, we, the followers of the movement Earth First in Northern California, do not agree with non-feral Daryl Journeys. Recent statement advocating no tree spiking. We are in a war with Mother Earth. Come one, come all to Humboldt County. We intend to spike trees, Mike wrench and even resort to violence if necessary. Um, so anyway, and it, actually you can tell this one's a phony because it says, it says uh, we will not stand for the destruction of, quote, Mother Earth. <laughs> um, this is another fake press 
press release, and this is this one's just this kind of rambling one about it's some thoughts on fight back, some thoughts on strategy, and this uh, tells you know how we're just supposed to just engage in random thing and not work and stuff like that. It's just kind of this crazy rambling one. This is a really interesting one. This one, if you all remember the Sahara Club, uh, gone but not forgotten. The Sahara Club was a right-wing anti-environmental group, and they were just total thugs, and they they taught a dirty tricks workshop up in Arcata, and uh, I guess it was in Eureka, in, in Redwood Summer, and uh, taught people how to harass act. They used to follow us to meetings, write down our license plates, numbers, videotape us, just generally harass us. Well, the, uh, the Sahara Club put out in their newsletter, they said, this is a picture from a, an Earth First Terrorism manual, they said. They said, if you send us $5, we'll send you the terrorism manual. And they said, uh, this is a picture of a, um, an improvised explosive device, okay? Now, this, of course, didn't come from any Earth First Terrorism manual. There is no such thing. But by distributing this, what they did is they simultaneously associated Earth First with bombs and explosives, made people fear Earth First, and gave out information on how to make bombs. So this was a, a very convenient one. Now, this one didn't go to the newspapers, but the two that did were treated as real by many of the papers, even though we've since been able to prove that they were knowingly distributed by Maxam Corporation, that they knew that they were fake when they gave them to the newspapers, and yet they still gave them. But at the time, it came out in the newspapers, split in, splinter group of Earth First calls for violence. And we'd go, what splinter group? You know, they, they even spelled Daryl's name wrong on one of them, and they said that I lived in Garberville. But that wasn't enough to convince the press not to treat this. And so if you were here, and there was also lots of weird stuff. People would walk up to me on the street, Daryl had this kind of experience too, and just like call me by name and say something very strange or very scary. Um, people did bizarre things at meetings. Some people might remember the guy I almost decked up here in Garberville that we made a motion, a very innocent motion to set up a collective child care committee for those of us with children. And the guy jumped up in my face and he said, hey, it's not my fault your old man left, ditched you and left you with the kids and I mean like I was like ready to deck the guy if that would have been a Ukiah it would have been over but in Garberville everybody like surrounded me and didn't let me and thank you because <laughs> so weird stuff like that was happening it was a very scary time it felt very unstable and just weird things that were unexplainable were happening and of course the police wouldn't help um, you know they told me if you turn up dead we'll investigate they told Daryl he'd be lucky if he was only beat up and um, so um, you know we didn't get any help from the police. But anyway, so that kind of, that, that's kind of just to put you in the mood to show you what we were dealing with in 1990. And now I want to kind of describe some of the things that I've learned about it in the last year. When we went to court and started arguing this case, one of the things that the FBI said, all these 50 slimy FBI agents, actually they weren't all FBI, half were OPD, but anyway, all of the 25 <laughs> slimy FBI agents, um, everybody that we asked this question, they said, we never heard of you. In fact, some of them were pretty funny. Some of them said, Earth first was nothing. You were less than nothing. Um, but <laughs> so they got really emotional about it, you know. But they, they repeatedly have testified that they never heard of us before the bomb went off. They said they never heard, they, they barely knew anything about Earth first. They just kind of maybe, maybe read the name in the paper or something, but they didn't really know much about it, and that they never heard of me or Daryl. And that the reason that they actually arrested us was not because we were Earth firsters that they were trying to discredit, but because they honestly believed that we blew our up. So that's kind of part of their defense. They said that this arrest was not based on any political reasons. It was just because of the evidence. Um, on the other hand, the Oakland police, who have a conflicting interest in this case, to our convenience, um, have testified the opposite. 
They said that the FBI was there almost immediately. And they said that the FBI terrorist squad, which is based in San Francisco, not Oakland, was there. And that as soon now Sergeant Sitterud, he was like one of the one of the Oakland guys. And he was one of the first that showed up at the scene. According to his log, he got there 20 minutes after the bomb went off. And he's testified that when he got there, FBI was already there and was continuing to arrive. And the first thing they did before he even saw the car is they took him aside. He was the sergeant, right? So he's the one who's in charge. They took him and they signed and they said, oh, we know the people in this car. And what Sergeant Sitters had testified is they said, they told us that these were the kind of people who would be involved in carrying explosives, bombs. So that's what they said before you start. They said these people in fact qualified as terrorists. They said they had a discussion of were we known terrorists or unknown terrorists. And they talked about Earth first. This is all in the Oakland testimony. So they said from the second the FBI got there, and it's in the log. It's in the log that was written at the time. Um, it, it has like, you know, 20, half hour after the bomb goes off, they've written down that we're radical activists with Earth First and we're, you know, uh, it, it's suspected and all these things and, you know, just kind of general bad people. And this information all came from the FBI who arrived on the scene immediately. Now, um, so, but, so we've had this conflict in the testimony. The FBI said they never heard of us. The Oakland police said the first thing they did was brief them on us and say we were known terrorists and the type of people who would carry a bomb. Well, they've given us a lot of files, but of course there's a lot of stuff crossed out. And one of the things that we've been doing over the last several years is fighting over getting the files that they won't give up and also fighting over getting things uncrossed out that were crossed out. And one of our little small victories this year is we got a bunch of passages uncrossed out that were crossed out from the files in the very first days of the bombing. And one of them we got to cross out. The very first guy to arrive at the bomb scene is named Special Agent, they're all special, Special Agent McKinley, okay? And Special Agent McKinley says, um, according to the file, there was this little crossed out part. And he like went on and on. He said, the reason he got there so early, he said, I was driving by on my lunch hour looking for an apron for my child to use in her, in her school play when I happened to hear that there was this bombing. So I went right over there. So that's how come he got there. It was just a coincidence. They had to go to Oakland to find an apron. And um, anyway, so, but there's this crossed out part. And we finally got the crossed out part uncrossed out. And what it says is that Judy Barry and Daryl Cherney are the subject of an FBI investigation in the terrorist department. And therefore, the terrorist squad is now en route to the bombing. That's how early this report is from. So... So now we get to find out who lied, the Oakland police or the FBI. Well, surprise, it's the FBI once again. So we caught them red-handed. And then there's a bunch of other, there are a couple other documents at the same time that kind of repeated the same thing, but this time with Earth First, that Earth First is terrorist. Earth First is suspected of these crimes. Judy and Daryl are associated with Earth First. So the things that were crossed out for all these years were not crossed out for any legitimate reason. They were just crossed out so that the FBI could cover up the fact that they were And, um, of course, the judge never gives them any penalties for this. You know, they just, oh, okay, they lied. Well, go on. You know, so they get no penalties whatsoever. But nonetheless, at least we got to find out that they were lying and what was going on. Well, what this does, now, not only did the FBI swear under oath to us in this lawsuit that they didn't know us before the bombing, but there was so much pressure for a congressional investigation after the bombing that our congressman, Frank Riggs, sent the FBI a list of questions to answer about, and they were real softball questions. But one of them was, what did you know about Judy and Daryl before the bombing? And the FBI answered in writing to Congress, and I have these documents in my files. They answered, 
We know, only thing we know about Daryl Cherney is he got arrested at the Golden Gate Bridge in a banner hanging, the terrorist banner hanging, and, um, and we never heard of Judy Berry. And then another question was, are you investigating Earth first? And the answer was no. So first of all, this thing that we just got crossed out shows not only that they've been lying under oath to us, but also that they lied in writing to Congress. Um, by the way, when I tried to call up Frank Riggs, they wouldn't, they wouldn't return my call. I left a message with his aide, but they weren't interested. Anyway, um, but there's something even more important that this shows, that this recently uncrossed out stuff that says that at the time of the bombing, me and Daryl were the subject of an ongoing investigation in the terrorist department. And what it shows is illegal spying by the FBI, because they had no right and they had no authorization to be investigating Daryl or me or any of us because none of us were involved in any crimes and there was no legitimate reason for them to think we were involved in any crimes. All that we were involved in was political organizing and that is exactly what was outlawed in the Attorney General guidelines after the hearings in Congress about COINTELPRO was the FBI to be spying on people for political activities rather than crimes. So that's really an important thing that we learned from this is that this really is a case of them targeting Earth first. So another thing that we did in the last year, and this was another big victory for us that we've been fighting them for years and years, is we've been trying to get us, them to give us the file. You've all mostly heard or seen Peg Millett talk or sing, and you know about what happened in Arizona Earth First where there was this sting operation and they set people up and busted them. Well, we've been trying to get from the FBI the San Francisco branch, that's the branch that, that's in charge of us, um, we're, nice to know they're in charge of us. Anyway, but um, we've been trying to get the San Francisco branches version of the Arizona file, what went on in the San Francisco branch about concerning the Arizona Earth First case. And for years, they've been trying to keep it from us. And what they've said is they said that it doesn't have anything to do with us. Well, we finally got a court order making them turn over that file, and that file was very interesting indeed also. What we found, of course, a lot of this we already knew, but here it is in writing, and a lot of the stuff, well, Peg pretty, pretty freely admits that she was a dupe, but oh, it was embarrassing to read these files. I mean, they just like set them up like bowling pins, um, and it really kind of shows, you know, you really need to learn the, the basic lesson of activism is that the person that can get the dynamite is always the FBI agent, okay? <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> So, um, but what they did in Arizona was a very classic COINTELPRO of the exact kind from the Black Panthers of AIM and all of those days of J. Edgar Hoover. What they did was they infiltrated um, Arizona Earth First with at least four, and we know the names of two, undercover agents and paid informants. And that was Michael Tate, or Michael Fain was his real name. Michael Tate was his forest name. Um, <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> Anyway, and, um, and Ron Frazier, and they worked together. And what they did is over a period of years, they won the trust of the Earth Firsters, and they really violated every just basic human decency in order to do this. Ron Frazier got in with the core group by babysitting for the two- and six-year-old children of Ilsa Absland. Um, of course, we all know about Michael Fain taking Peg out dancing, and there it was in the files. And, um, but um, the, one of the main targets, of course, was Mark Davis, who ended up spending 
spending several years in jail for this. And what they did is they really just kind of took advantage of him. Now, they, they, what they did, they kept on, he's this kind of macho guy, and you know, there used to be this kind of naive belief in Earth First that if you knock down a few power lines, the revolution would come. And um, so they really kind of played on his macho fantasies. And they had these two FBI agents working him, and they kept, they spent two years trying to tell him that they could get thermite. And what they said is that, um, they said, now, thermite, I, I didn't even know what thermite is, but it's, I guess it's classified as an explosive. But what it does is it melts metal very quickly so that they, they're going to try to take down these power lines with thermite. And now they, they always said, well, Earth versus terrorists, we have this book in, the, in Peg's trial. They were showing off the book Eco-Defense to prove what terrorists Earth firsters were. Well, it is indeed true that Earth First has, and in some cases still does, I don't think in this region, but in some other regions, endorses sabotage. But sabotage is quite different than what this was. There's one thing in the, only one line in the whole book, Eco-Defense, about bombs and guns. It says, stay away from bombs and guns. So bombs and guns have always been outside the basis of unity of Earth First, even the most extreme monkey wrenchers in the group. That's always been outside the basis of unity. But what COINTELPRO does, the word is misdirect. They take your flaws and they exaggerate them and they push you in a direction until you can be discredited. So what these two FBI agents spent two years saying is, we can get you thermite, we can get you thermite, you should use thermite to take down these power poles. Now why they couldn't just loosen the bolts is beyond me, but they had this high-tech way with these thermite. And what they, they were kind of in trouble because they couldn't actually get the thermite or else they'd be guilty of entrapment. So they had to kind of lead him along to get his own thermite by telling him that, and of course he didn't know anybody who could get thermite. So it was a very odd operation. They staged a fake explosives buy in front of Peg Millet to convince her that the guy, that the FBI agent wasn't a cop. Um, they they staged, staged a fake robbery in front of Mark Davis with the FBI agent to produce, convince Mark Davis that the FBI agent wasn't a cop. And um, they did all kinds of things like this. You know, they, the guy with Ron Frazier came wired with a body wire to Thanksgiving dinner, waited till they all got drunk and full of turkey and sitting around talking about what's their biggest fantasy action ever. So that's the kind of thing that they did to just kind of get inside. And finally, after two years, um, they they did manage to get, they, they wanted to involve Dave Foreman, as you probably know that part, they said, you know, this was who we have to get to send a message, and so they did manage to get Dave Foreman to give $560 to Mark Davis and for this action, and Mark Davis gave it to the FBI agent to buy thermite, and that actually happened, and there it is in the files. But the next day, Mark Davis had a change of heart, and this is in the files too. And he went back to the FBI agent and he said, it's not right to use explosives. We don't need explosives to do this job. Give me back my money. So the FBI was never able to convince Earth First to use any explosives to take down these power lines. And they had to settle for a regular conventional saw down the power lines action. But it, nonetheless, they were in this core group that did this. There were four Earth Firsters and two FBI agents. I've always called this the joint FBI Earth First action. And um, what they did is they, um, <laughs> the FBI agent bought the acetylene torch, taught the Earth Firsters how to use it, drove them to the site, chose the site, okay, paid for the gas, and then while they were taking down the power line, FBI rose up in helicopters from the surrounding valley and halt, this is the FBI, and busted them, and Peg Millick got away. And y'all know that's a separate story. Um, but anyway, um, but the thing that's really important about this, okay, is not only that this is a classic 
COINTELPRO. And the FBI has been trying for all these years to say, you can't have this file because this has nothing to do with your case. And we have said, yes, it does. It's the essence of our case because it shows that at the time of the bombing, the, the, this, this um, Arizona case, it started, the file starts in 88 and it goes until 90. Okay, so at the time of the bombing, Earth First was an active target of a COINTELPRO, of exactly the J. Edgar Hoover type of COINTELPRO that was designed to expose, misdirect, isolate, and neutralize Earth First by getting us to do something that they could bust us for, et cetera, et cetera. But it's more than just that. The specific purpose, the specific method of this COINTELPRO was to discredit Earth First by associating us with explosives. Because the name of this operation in Arizona is called Operation Thermcon, as in thermite conspiracy. But there was no thermite anywhere except in the mind of the FBI agent. This was not a case of the FBI going into Arizona Earth First and infiltrating it in order to break up a thermite conspiracy. This was a case of the FBI going into Arizona and trying to create a thermite conspiracy so that they could bust people for it. So it's in the context of this COINTELPRO in which they're trying to discredit Earth First by associating us with bombs that the FBI terrorist squad responded to the bombing in May of 1990 and arrested Daryl and me for the bombing. So that's something that I found to be extremely significant about this file, but there's more to it than that. We also, now this was the, this was the San Francisco file. So although we have all the little memos from Arizona and that's where we get all the juicy stuff about the fake explosive spies and taking them out dancing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then there's also the San Francisco. What did San Francisco do to help with this operation? Well, first of all, the first thing that I found about it is a lot of it is just routine spying. Okay, but I found that the very same agents who worked on my case worked on the Thermcon case. These are the same agents who say, oh, we don't know anything about Earth First. We never heard of Earth First. We have no opinion of Earth First. I found that the personnel are the same in the cases. In fact, the case agent on the Thermcon case was the case agent on my case was the case agent on a, the Unabomber case. Okay, um, so, um, so first of all, I found it was the same agents. They did things like Special Agent Frank Doyle, the guy who told all the lies at the bomb scene. Well, he drew the chore of finding out where Karen Pickett lived, for example, or first or Karen Pickett. He, he found the directions to her house with the help of the post office. Um, but she has a P.O. box, but they were willing to cooperate with the FBI. Um, so a lot of it was just kind of routine information gathering. And actually, Epic sent me some files that were all crossed out that I will send you all the uncrossed out versions as soon as I get a chance to. Um, Epic and Gil Gregori's name was in here. Epic's name was in here. Daryl's name was in here. They did kind of a phone sweep where they said they did everybody that was called by Mark Davis or you know Dave Foreman or anybody like that. They listed all their phone numbers and who they called. So Epic, that's why you were in the file. And Gil Gregori, that's why you were in the file because you were called by one of the criminals. Um, and I'll send you the uncrossed out versions of your files as soon as I can. Anyway, but um, so that was one of the things about that is that they just kind of did routine spying and information gathering. But most of what they did in the San Francisco branch on the Thermcon case is they spied on this guy named Mark Berry. Now, Mark Berry was not only a minor player, he wasn't a player at all. He was a friend of Mark Davis. Okay, Mark Davis, in case people don't remember, is the guy who 
was the lead guy in dropping the power lines, right? Well, Mark Davis was like such a dedicated activist. You all from base camp will appreciate this. He went totally broke because he wasn't working and his truck was repossessed, okay? And um, so his, uh, an old friend of his, Mark Berry, they used to be work at a cabinet shop together and Mark Berry now lived in Marin. And Mark Berry says, well, why don't you come and visit me for a couple weeks? We can work together in my cabinet shop. You can get enough money to get your truck out of hock. So Mark Davis comes to visit Mark Berry, and much of the activity in this file consists of them spying on Mark Berry and the stuff they did to spy on this guy. I mean, this guy is a minor player. They've got what they call, they've got a total phone cover on him. That means they're checking all phone calls. They've got a mail cover on him. They've got FBI agents parked outside his door waiting for him, following him every place he goes. They've got planes flying overhead watching what he did. The first thing they did, they spent, sent the same guy's name as John, Special Agent John Conway, that's the guy that was the case agent in Thermcon and my case and the Unabomber case. They send John Conway out to check out where Mark Berry lives. Now, Mark Berry lives in this kind of rural place where the only relationship he has to his neighbors is they all have the same landlord. I'm sure you all, a lot of you all live in these kind of things, like a little cluster of houses in a rural area, and they all rent from a landlord. Well, John Conway comes out there, and he like, has this fake thing that he's going to pretend he's looking for a non-existent person. So he knocks on people's doors and says, have you seen so-and-so, right? Well, John Conway reports in his report, just from looking around this place, he says... Mark Berry lives in a closed compound of people who don't respect authority, okay? <laughs> um, and in fact, I mean, the guy's renting a house and he doesn't even you know, have any relation to his neighbors at all, but that's the kind of prejudice that they bring into it. But anyway, they're following this guy every place that he goes. They follow him for months and months and months. And finally, after months and months, they're forced to report that Mark Berry appears to be an ordinary working man who mostly goes to and from work and seems to have little variety in his schedule. So they decide to check out his work and see if it's really a bomb-making factory or something, I don't know. So what they did is they sent a pregnant FBI agent with a man FBI agent to the cabinet shop pretending to pick out furniture for baby. Okay, so this is the kind of stuff that the FBI did to spy on somebody who had no associate. The guy was not even a political activist. He had no association with any crimes whatsoever. He was simply an old friend of somebody who was being targeted by the FBI. He wasn't an earth firster. He liked to hike. He went to a Friends of the River gathering once. I know all this stuff about this guy from his files. <laughs> Never met the guy. I kind of feel sorry for him. But anyway, <laughs> um, so, so that, that a lot of the activity in this file consisted of spying on this poor, hapless guy. This is KZYX. You're listening to a speech by Earth First organizer Judy Berry, who spoke at the Beginnings Octagon on November 14, 1996. This was the last time Judy spoke in public about her case against the FBI before her death. Um, there is nothing that I can see in the file that shows that they were spying on Daryl or me or anybody that we directly know here. Um, but there's a very lot blacked out in this file, much more than there is in my file. So it's hard to see what's really in there. But back in 1988, one of the documents says Arizona FBI sends out a memo to all the FBI offices in the country and says, tell us everything you got on Earth first. Well, this is 1988. Now, in Mendocino County, Earth First was barely starting in 1988. And yet they send back this five-page document that's entirely blacked out, except for the last line. I don't know why they left me this last line. And the last line says, uh, Dan Tower lives in Mendocino, California, and they listed his address. What I can't tell, I can tell by the codes when they cross things out why they're crossing them out. And the code is something called Code B. And what Code B means is undercover agent. 
So that means that in 1988, they had undercover agents spying on Earth First in Mendocino County, and we didn't even hardly have an Earth First in Mendocino County yet. And I can't tell from the file whether Dan Tower was being spied on or whether he was the informant. I can't tell that. It's one or the other. But uh, nonetheless, there it is in the file. It shows that the FBI had undercover activity in Mendocino County in 1988. Another thing that it shows is also very, very strange and almost to the point, I'd have to say, of alarming. Um, this case goes on. Eventually, they take him out in the desert. They drop the power line. They bust him. And finally, in January 90, Arizona FBI closes the Thermcon file. They put a little document in it that says, this case is now closed. We're done. We've busted the guys. We're finished with it. Three months later, in March of 1990, the San Francisco FBI office starts putting more documents in this closed Thermcon file. And they're almost entirely blacked out. There's almost nothing that I can see on them. In fact, in some cases, the dates are blacked out. But one of them, I could find the date of March 15, 1990. And what these documents indicate, it's another code B, which means undercover agent. And the only words that show is that an, uh, an informant is going to be meeting with an undercover agent on a weekly basis. In March 1990, two months before I was bombed. And you have to kind of wonder, I mean, what was going on at that time? What was going on was we were beginning to organize Redwood Summer. We don't know who they were spying on. We don't even know whether this was in San Francisco or Mendocino or Humboldt um, or where. But you have to kind of wonder, because where was the activity in Earth first? So these totally blacked out things are in there. And what, so now what I have gotten from this is that they had under activ undercover activity in our area, not only in 1988, but also in 1990, when all these weird documents were coming out. That is precisely when these documents started coming out, is March of 1990. And that's when the files show undercover activity. So I found that to be very suspicious, but what's even more suspicious is what's missing from this file. Because in the middle of two completely crossed out documents that show this undercover activity, and the undercover agent meeting with the, with the source, as they call it, or the informant once a week, there's this little piece of paper, and it says, serials number 142 through 149 were missing from this file when it was processed. And the next document after that is June 1990, one month after I was bombed. So the part that's missing from this file is the very part that we're interested in, is what was the FBI doing right before the bombing? And that's what's missing. Now, the FBI, has, the FBI always has an explanation for everything, and they have an explanation for this. They said that these files are not missing at all. They were just changing over the computer system. They used to use this X system, which was very confusing, and they were, they were switching over to this non-X system, and they're really the documents just never existed. The numbers just kind of skip. Well, if the documents didn't exist, why did the person who was processing the file put in a card that says these files, these serial numbers were missing when this file was processed? You have to kind of wonder. Not only that, these aren't the only documents that are missing from files with strange excuses. Um, the main file that, of my case, the Oakland bomb file, it's huge, it's a giant file. Um, and it's a very strange thing about this file. They have, once you learn, start reading FBI files, it's a whole art in itself. And there's a million little stamps and codes that mean all kinds of things. And I actually can read most of them now. I don't know what I'm going to do with this skill. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, anyway, but um, so they have this certain little numbering system that they use. And in the Oakland file, in the Oakland bomb file, Almost every single, other than the very first few couple of, of documents, every single serial number, and the serial numbers go in order so that you can tell if they're hiding files, supposedly. Every single serial number is crossed out, 
and a new serial number is written in. And the new serial numbers seem to have hundreds less, less numbers than the old serial numbers. Now, also coincidentally, there are whole bodies of information that are missing from the Oakland bomb file, the FBI's file. For example, there's not a single document that describes the FBI coming on the scene and why they decided that the bomb was in the back seat. There's not one document that, that you know, that... that uh, memorializes that. And you would think that there would be. There's something called an FD302 that they're supposed to write anytime something may be evidence. And so here's the key evidence in the case. The bomb is in the back seat. There's not one document that shows it. Also, I talked about earlier that the FBI lab bomb expert, he came out here in June of 1990. He came out got a mock-up of the bomb, got an intact car of the same model, an intact Subaru, and he showed the local FBI agents who supposedly were so too dense to figure this out that the bomb was underneath the car seat. And he put this mock-up, you can see those pictures, he put the mock-up bomb in the intact car, and then he put it in the bomb car, and he showed how it matched the hole to show that it was located under the, under the seat. Now, this is a pretty important operation. It's like the key to the case. There is not one document in the whole file. The only reason I even know that it it existed is because the Oakland police took pictures of it and it came in the stack of pictures. But there's no documents that say it. So then there's also all these documents that are missing. So of course we asked the FBI and we said, well, why are all these, why is every single document crossed out? Why did you write in all these new serial numbers and why are there so many few numbers in the new one? And they said, oh, there's not really any missing files. We just had an incompetent rotor clerk. And the rotor clerk, of course, is the woman who uh, keeps the files. And um, they said, we had an incompetent rotor clerk and we had to fire her. So we said, okay, and they said somebody else had to redo her work. So we said, okay, well, then we need the name of the incompetent rotor clerk, and we need the name of her replacement so that we can question them under oath. And the FBI simply refused. So we had to go to court and get a court order ordering them to produce the rotor clerk, the incompetent rotor clerk, and they are now ordered to produce the incompetent rotor clerk, but they've just been dragging their feet and have yes to do so. So they kind of do this all along. All we know is that there are some huge gaps there are some huge gaps in this case, and there are some very suspicious things in the case. But there are really some lingering questions. There are questions that this really leads me with, leave me with about it that I think are very key to the case. And the first question is, if, as the FBI files say, and if, as the Oakland police have testified, if indeed me, Daryl and... Daryl and I, isn't it? People always criticize me for this. Me. Okay, Daryl and I... Um, I really took school on it. Anyway, it's just been a long time. Anyway, so... Um, Okay, so um, anyway, if Daryl and I were under investigation, if Daryl and I at the time of the bombing in 1990 were the subjects of an investigation in the terrorist squad, what were we being investigated for and where are the records of that investigation? And if we were being investigated, if we as key principal Earth Firsters in 1990 were the subjects of an investigation in the terrorist department, were we under surveillance? Were we under surveillance at the time of the bombing? Because what I've seen in the cases is the kind of surveillance that they put on people is pretty total. So those are kind of where, that's kind of what I've been thinking about the case, where I've been coming with it this year. And the things we've been learning this year are kind of a much more broad showing the overall COINTELPRO, showing the overall activities of the FBI. And I think that these things that we're just beginning to get on the edge of are really key to the case.
But you know, the other thing that I want to say that I've really gotten from this, that I've gotten from this case this year, is what a tremendous victory it is for all of us that we're still out here. You know, the fact that six years ago, they had it spread all over the world, not just the United States, that we were terrorists who blew ourselves up with our own bomb. And this year, we could openly, arm in arm with Epic, arm in arm with the other groups in this community, that we could help lead an action of 1,033 people getting arrested, that we could stay out there for two months, that we could still... We can still be kicking butt in headwaters and getting ready to do it again tomorrow. That, to me, is the hugest victory that we can have over FBI's COINTELPRO because they have not succeeded in isolating us. They have not succeeded in discrediting us. And the only way that this can continue is the people in this community. This is why I thought it was so important to talk to this community rather than to go down to Santa Rosa or Oakland or keep one of those gigs because in this, we here are the people that can prevent COINTELPROs from happening. We can prevent people from being isolated. When we can understand the kind of forces that are used against us, the kind of just duplicity, then of course we make mistakes. Of course Earth Firsters makes mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. But as long as we as a community can stick together and remember who we are and who we're fighting and what we're up against, then they're not going to be able to stop us, COINTELPRO or no. Um, if you want to, I can answer a few questions. If you don't, I'm fine to leave, too. So uh, it's up to you if you want me to tell you any humble tidbits or anything. Tell us the judge's name. Okay, the judge's name is Sister Claudia Wilkin. Um, and, um, yeah, the sister is in quotes. Um, anyway, yes. The, the dishonorable, yeah. And she's supposedly one of the more liberal judges, but she's been very, very timid about ruling against the FBI, including um, even when they make an outrageous motion, even, she'll, rather than rule against them, she'll kind of pocket veto a motion. Um, you know, she'll just kind of sit on things that has the same effect as ruling against them, but she'll very rarely make an absolute ruling against them. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have a lot of trust of her or of the court system in general. I mean, when you think about it, here we are in this federal courtroom, right? And the judge's boss is Janet Reno. She's part of the Justice Department. And the lawyer that represents the FBI, he also answers to Janet Reno. He's part of the Justice Department. And the FBI is also under Janet Reno in the Justice Department. The only people in that courtroom that aren't from the Justice Department are us. So um, <laughs> the injustice department, we're from the Justice Department. Anyway, so... <laughs> the incredible strength of our case and the fact that we're still around and also to the incredible work of Dennis Cunningham, our awesome lawyer. Uh, but in his hilarious brief, I mean, he writes the best briefs. His most recent brief, it says, and look at this pictures. He always calls them judge instead of your honor. <laughs> and he goes, uh, he says, look at these photos. He says, and so Frank Doyle, the special agent who lied about the bomb, he says, Frank Doyle or Stevie Wonder or Ray Charles could have seen where that bomb is. And that's right in the brief. Anyway, but um, so despite the strength of the case, though, <laughs> despite the strength of the case, I'm not convinced that we're going to win because of the injustice of the court system. And that's really why we need your support. 
I, actually, I think I do want to tell you one thing, just so I can name some names in your community. Um, we mentioned the uh, earlier on. I mentioned those fake press releases, right? That were distributed, and what, the way we found out that those were distributed by Maxam and that they knew that they were fake was because Maxam made the mistake of suing Daryl Cherney. So, for those of you who are worried about a slap suit after headwaters, think of this one. So, the first thing now we get: anyone that gets sued, you get discovery. So the first thing that Mark Harris was a lawyer, Mark Harris said, we want everything you got on Earth first in your files. So Maxam had to give up all these memos, and they were killer memos. They were memos that said things like they had, like the Galitz used to be the PR guy before Bullwinkle. They have Galitz saying to John Campbell, look, here's a newspaper article about a, a demonstration in which Greg King, Earth first or Greg King, got decked. As soon as we find the name of the fine fellow who decked Greg King, he has a dinner invitation at the Galitz residence. I mean, this is like the kind of files that they have. Now, a whole bunch of them, they like sneer and laugh at the violence against us and stuff like that. Anyway, so um, one of these files, in one of these files, which is dated April 18th, 1990, um, the internal memo from Maxam, they say, well, here's some press releases, but since Daryl's name is, is spelled wrong, we don't really know who wrote them. One week later, they gave them to the city papers. So that's how we can prove that Maxam knew, and we have that in the papers. The papers say, we have just received this packet of information from Maxam, including these press releases, blah, blah, blah. So um, anyway, so that's how we can prove that Maxam knowingly distributed the fake press releases. But now comes the question of where did they come from? Who wrote them? Now, I've been talking a lot about FBI Co. and Telpro, but this is the 90s. It's the age of privatization. And not only are we now seeing Co. and Telpro, the resurgence of COINTELPRO, but we're seeing the privatization of COINTELPRO. The same kind of techniques that have been used by the FBI are being used by private corporations. Okay, and um, so what happened in, what we, the FBI, when they were investigating, they were trying their best not to investigate the bombing. They were investigating everything they could think of except the bombing. So um, they went around and asked all of the wise use groups, you know, the right-wing anti-timber groups, and there was a slew of them in 1990. For anybody who's here since then, you, you should, can really appreciate the difference, how many of them there were. So um, one of the people that they interviewed was Paula Langager. Ms. Mickey Doulis may remember her. Paula Langager was one of the co-sponsors of the Dirty Tricks workshop that the Sahara Club taught. And uh, what they did at this one, right after the Dirty Tricks workshop, they made a fake bomb and they planted it in the Arcata Earth First office, but the Arcata Earth Firsters, or the uh, whoever was there, Karen Pickett was one of them, chased the guy into a bar and nabbed him and held him and got him arrested and he, that's how we found out that the guy was indeed from the Sahara Club and associated with the Dirty work, Tricks workshop. Anyway, so that's who Paula Langager is, is she's one, and she was in charge of the Yellow Ribbon campaign. So the FBI is going around and they're asking all our enemies about us. They don't, you know, they kind of interviewed the, the suspects as witnesses and the witnesses as suspects is kind of the way they did it. So they're interviewing Paul Langager and Paul Langager volunteers to them. And she says, there's a group of people in Humboldt County that put out the Wise Use Advocate, which was a newspaper they used to put out, and said some of these people, Carla Sammons and Dave Cruzan, like to play little tricks on Earth First. Dave Cruzan wrote these press releases and she hands them to the FBI the very same fake press releases that they're using to show that we're terrorists. And so Paula Langager snitches off Dave Cruzan and says to the FBI, Dave Cruzan wrote and distributed these fake press releases. Well, the FBI never interviewed him. They never followed up on it. They never did anything about it. So this guy, now I don't know if he's still around enough. I mean, I know Daryl knows him. He works for PL, right? Uh, Eel River. Eel River. And actually, um, 
He was at a counter demonstration against us is when I met him, and they were all chanting, and we were chanting. We were out trying to out-chant each other, and so I went up to him and said, hey, let's go out for coffee afterwards. So we went out for coffee afterwards, and we sat down at this table, and he said, the first thing he said to us is, are you communists? And I said, no, we're much more radical than the communists. The communists only want to rearrange the spoils of raping the earth more evenly among the classes of humans. (laughs) Well, he turned that tape into the FBI. (laughs) So that's who Dave Kruzanin, he's this kind of pro-timber booster, and he's still around, and he wrote the fake press releases, and nothing has ever come of it. So I I guess I want to tell you that. And then the one other thing I guess I should tell you, just to drop the names, um, is that... um when you know when we went, the other thing that the FBI did when they were investigating the bombing is they falsified their own records. They couldn't find any evidence of us being participating in any criminal activities, no matter how hard they tried. They even found that sometimes their enemies even respected us. So they were having this really hard time concocting a record that would make us look like terrorists. So. Um, they falsified their own records. And the strongest testimony that we've gotten from this is from the Humboldt sheriffs. And those of you who are being arrested tomorrow, and if you happen to draw one of these sheriffs, you should know this about him. And the two that testified the strongest are Gary Felp of the Humboldt sheriff and Rod Lester. And Rod Lester, though, Rod Lester, he was undercover in 90. He had a ponytail, which he says is now on his wall in his office. Okay, he was trying to be a hippie. But anyway, um, and Gary Holder, by the way, testified quite strongly privately in his office. But when we got him on the record, he totally wimped out. But this is what, um, this is what, what um, Gary Phelps said. He said, now, if you, these are the files I mentioned, Francine Allen being part of the core group capable of violence. What it says in the files is it says, the Humboldt County Sheriff's say, that the FBI says, that a core group capable of violence is, and it lists about 10 names. I'm not on it. <laughs> Daryl's on it. Um, is Mickey on it? Yeah, Mickey's on it, right? Yes, Mickey Dulles is on it. Francine Allen is on it. Um, Bill Duval is on it. Um, Greg King, Larry Evans. It's quite a core group. <laughs> um, anyway, so when we, when we deposed the Humboldt Sheriff, they said, we never said that these people were violent. These people are very nonviolent. They said, that's not what the FBI asked us. The FBI asked us, who is the core group organizing Redwood Summer? That's why we gave them those names. So that, once again, is a double whammy. Not only is the FBI lying on their own records to make it look like we're violent, but also they're not allowed to ask that question, who's organizing Redwood Summer. They're only allowed to investigate crimes. They're not allowed to investigate political activities. So um, I guess that's one of the other little Humboldt tidbits. <laughs> so. Okay, well, anyway, I'm going to get off and, and let Francine and Maya sing and let us listen to their beautiful harmonies. I have one final thing to say, and that is that when I, some of you may have seen me in the last days before I dropped out of the Headwaters campaign, kind of dragging myself to the meetings and getting tireder and tireder, and it was pretty hard, and it was pretty hard to leave. Um, and when I finally found out what was wrong with me and why I was so tired, Um, You know, the trees let me go, and they wouldn't let me go earlier. I mean, I had this last summer. I had it last summer when I was organizing for September 15th. Trees wouldn't let me go yet then. Um, But when it was finally time to step back and to drop out of the Headwaters campaign, the trees let me go with the confidence that you all are doing it. And it's so inspiring me to me to see that I can completely drop out of this and have you all continue with such an awesome campaign. I just want to thank you for being such a wonderful community and such a wonderful movement and let's get out there and get them.
That was Judy Berry, local Earth First organizer, speaking about the 1990 bombing that almost took her life and her fight for justice against the FBI and Oakland police. In 2002, in a historic ruling, an Oakland jury found the FBI and OPD liable for over $4 million in damages for civil rights abuses in Judy's case. The Mendocino County Museum is hosting a new exhibit, The Bombing of Judy Berry, a Community Remembers, starting tomorrow, September 18th, and running for six weeks at the museum at 400 East Commercial Street in Willits. The exhibit will feature the car Judy was driving when the bomb exploded under her seat, as well as photos and other evidence from the bombing case. There will also be a series of live events held outside in the museum's courtyard to remember the many facets of Judy's work and legacy. The first event will look back at Redwood Summer 1990 with a panel of people who were there. That will be tomorrow afternoon starting at 1 o'clock. Other events will feature the lawyers who brought and won the federal civil rights case and a panel with the timber workers who worked with Judy to build the alliance, and much more. You can visit MendocinoCountyMuseum.org to see the full schedule. I'm Alicia Bales. Thank you for listening and for remembering. Where you going today, my friend? Well, I thought I would head south. I gotta tell the people of this land things just ain't working out. How they kill him till there's nothing left. Gentle giants of the north laying all the forest lands to waste, cutting deep into our hearts. Friends, the trees are calling, thousands falling every day and night. Don't you let stop you or distract you from what's right always keep in mind the trees let them be your guiding light where you going today my friends or didn't you hear the news about Judy and Daryl, a planted bomb, and the FBI's abuse? About locking up the victims while assassins are running free? About free to say what's on your mind till you mess with the big money? Friends, the trees are calling thousands falling every day and night Don't you let them stop you or distract you from what's right Always keep in mind the trees let them be your guiding Where you going today, my friend? Well, I thought I would head north I gotta tell the people of this land Just what this country's worth How they're trying to stop the people's voice A common government sport But it seems they still don't know us yet They've 
you've only helped to call us forth. Friends, the trees are calling, thousands falling every day and night. We won't let them stop us or distract us from what's right. Redwood summer's just begun We're not giving in to fright Redwood summer's just begun We're not giving in to fright Redwood summer's just begun The people know what's right. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.